And then if you're just chasing money, I mean, that takes you up to a certain point, you know, like after that, like you potentially will get burned and you will not hit those ultimate potentials that you have. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Hey folks, it's Michael O'Sullivan, the host of Oil and Gas Tech, and I just want to chime in here real quick and let you know that this particular episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders is made possible by Sherpa Coaching. Now, if you are an industry leader like all of the people that come on this show, then you probably already know about Sherpa. But just in case not, let me tell you about them. With a national network of certified coaches, Sherpa helps people refine their leadership skills and get the most from their talent. They were founded in 2004, and since then, Sherpa has trained over 10,000 leaders and certified more than 600 coaches. Their offerings include things like one-on-one executive coaching, team workshops, and executive coaching certification. Sherpa coaches focus on habits and behaviors with the greatest impact on individual performance, team effectiveness, and unification. Positive skills plus positive behaviors equals a positive impact on business. And you can learn more at pages.sherpacoaching.com slash OGGN. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast. Leave a review, guys. I want to read these to you. It always makes me excited. It also helps me absorb some constructive criticism. So if you don't like it, tell me. If you do like it, tell me. Let's, you know, it helps other people find the show. Anyway... I'm sitting here this afternoon with Armand Paradis, founder and chief executive officer at Combo Curve Inc. How's it going, Armand? Going great, Paige. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about how you got started in the oil and gas industry. Got it. So oil and gas industry was always fascinating to me because just going, seeing those big wells and they making like thousands of barrels of oil and uh, you see those big flare stack. I know a flare is not the best thing to just say, but it's impressive. Like some of those are like big flare stacks. It's just so much heat like it's coming from a single well bore. So a lot of cool stuff, just a lot of technologies being used and basically just understanding that how this energy is generated. And also basically, I know there are a lot of money in the oil and gas, which was attractive to me as well when I was in high school because I mean, obviously, you wanna. I, I wanted to be an engineer, but sometimes I wanted to have an engineer that actually makes money and adds value to society. So that's why I chose petroleum engineering. Oh, that's great. So where are you originally from? I grew up in Iran. So I went to top technical schools in the engineering, and I came to U.S. when I was 21, 22. So again, I came here because I know the best petroleum engineering Schools are in the U.S. and then there are a lot of great oil and gas companies. So wanted to learn what's going on in the U.S. and Canada about the oil and gas industry. So that's why I came here. Awesome. But somehow you ended up in Louisiana. How did that happen? I mean, if you think about it, when you're in the oil and gas business, 
there's not a ton of options, correct? So yeah, no, like, you're right. I mean, you're absolutely yeah. right. I mean, you've got, you know, the Upper East Coast. You've got, you know, up in Montana was all that up there. And then, you know, the Gulf Coast. That's it. Exactly. That's And Louisiana is one of the states that makes, I mean, it makes a lot of oil and gas. Or should I say, it used to make a lot of oil and gas. Yeah, it used but, to. Yeah. So anyway, so that's. Again, the options were limited, and I got a great scholarship, and the people were nice and stuff. So that's why I went to Louisiana. Oh, yeah, definitely. Everybody's everybody's cousin. Very much. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what up, what up cuz? Yeah. What up, cuz? <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, I really enjoyed it. So the food was amazing. The people were super friendly. Yeah. So anyway, I definitely missed those days. Yeah, 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 I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you don't miss it <laughs> no okay so i love visiting i love visiting uh, i don't necessarily agree with the government there yeah just not a fan of the governor and those folks not necessarily yeah. the government but yeah no i'm actually i'll be there in about a month to go see family so nice yeah nice. yeah so you graduated from university of louisiana La- louisiana La- La- lafayette La- yeah. It's changed its name so many times. I remember it as USL. So I was like, hey, wait. <laughs> that's oh, it's back UL. in the day's name. Right. That's, that's, yeah. yeah. So did yeah. you graduate when it was USL? No, no. I'm not that old. So. Okay. <laughs> uh, I graduated when it was UL. So it was, <laughs> it was 2010. So. <laughs> Sorry about that. I didn't mean to imply that you were old. <laughs> No, but I used to hear that story a lot that it used to be called like uh, USL and then they changed the name because they have some issues with Baron Rouge. Yeah. So Oh, they, with LSU. Yeah, yeah, that, LSU, yeah that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. 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 yeah, that makes sense. That sounds like something they would do. Anyway, so you graduated with a petroleum engineering degree. Did you have a specific focus? Was it reservoir engineering? Yeah, it was mainly reservoir okay. engineering. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So why did you choose that? I mean, overall, majority of the courses and everything I took in the bachelor was reservoir focused, and our school was mainly reservoir focused. Oh, okay. And then that was more analytical, correct? So, and I like I like math a lot. So basically, in compared to the other aspects of the petroleum engineering, it's just a little bit more heavy on the mathematics and analytics and the physics, but like. Other aspects is more operations. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where'd you go after you graduated? I started to work for Mary Energy. It was a small operator, so we had a lot of conventional wells in Louisiana. So I worked there for three or four years. But since it was a small company, I was involved in the all aspects of the running an EMP. So from actually going to the field, workovers, drilling and the side tracks and the fishing jobs and the, <laughs> the fishing jobs yeah. that always yeah. eat the side tracks right <laughs> yeah yeah exactly a lot of those i was involved in those and also in the a lot of office work basically doing detail reservoir engineering and the simulations and also geology just getting into the log and also petrophysics so i learned pretty much majority of the disciplines in the oil and gas so that's and that was great, really great experience. So. Oh, that's good. That's good. Where'd you go after Merit? 
So I went to all my friends start moving to Houston because, you know, so, and I moved to Houston as well, start working for Star Oil or Equinor. Yeah. So I started working in the reservoir engineering, senior reservoir engineering in Marcellus and Utica assets and uh, mainly U.S. onshore related assets. That was the time that I became significantly more focused on the reservoir engineering aspects of the business. Which was great. Again, so it just again you, you get into more significantly sophisticated workflows and also interacting with a lot more people. And that's the time that you realize the impact of technology is very important. Like at that size, and then also collaborations and the interactions with a lot of people and working in harmony. Honestly, that was the time that I figure, yeah, we need a system. Okay. Yeah. So you, not only collaboration, but you have to integrate everything. Yep. Integration and collaboration. So that become, I mean, obviously very important. So it was during 2014. So obviously oil and gas price was very comparable to yeah. these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was about to say it was much higher, but no, it's like very comparable right now to these days oil and gas prices. And it was I mean, there were a lot more rigs at that time. That's the biggest difference. And then things were a little bit more more fast-paced and because they were making decisions quickly. It was a lot of land grabs, drill, drill, drill wells. So I realized that we're making a lot of decisions very quickly without actually looking to the numbers in detail. And that wasn't, again, unique to us. I mean, I did my research and I figured it's pretty much the same way across the industry for most part. And I saw we using a lot of software from 30, 40 years ago that were designed for that time, you know? So mm-hmm. and if you look in the software industry, things are changing very quickly. You know, it's like a software that's been built three, four, five years ago. I mean, it's already old for a lot of use cases, correct? So, but we were using tools from 30, 40 years ago, and it was very widespread tools, and which was, to me, is a little bit a big red flag. You know? so, and I figured that's a little bit scary as well. So uh, I saw learning curves are very uh, steep. You have to spend a lot of time learning these software with very minimum material available for yourself to go and self-educate. And also, again, it was very outdated. Like at the time that everybody... And we're talking cloud technologies and a lot of heavy computation tasks and a lot of integrations and collaborations and modern interface. We were still using a tool that runs on MS-DOS and (laughs) 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 you have to open it up and you don't know where to click. It's just like, I couldn't even do my basic job. So, and then I did the research and I figured pretty much majority of people don't know what they're doing because it was very tough to everybody has doubts if they're doing it correctly or not and uh, i would say we had in the entire organization we have two three experts that they really knew the software very well and they were confident majority of the people they didn't have the confidence that they need to make million dollar decisions correct and in right. our industry we hundred thousand is like considered pennies a lot of decisions goes to Some millions of change. dollars eh? <laughs> yeah, or even billion dollars, correct? So yeah. thinking about like if you want to make a billion dollar decision, you want a tool 
that is designed for billion dollar decisions. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I'm still laughing about MS DOS. <laughs> yeah. Not seriously. I'm not exaggerating. I know. Like I, it's hard for yeah. me to wrap my head around because I don't remember the last time I used that. Yeah, I guarantee you there are softwares that you open up and you don't know you can't even open up the basic like it's just simple a diagram or just see how the production profile looks like. You know, so like it's just you have to go to three, four months, six months of training and then just learn the fundamentals. And then you see people been in the business for 10 years and they're still learning. So that just tells you. That's insane. That's just crazy. Yeah. How frustrating was that, right? It is. It's very frustrating. And like a lot of engineers have to learn to code, actually. Correct? I mean. Wow. Yeah. So again, that was just big problem and then it was a lot of those solutions are like black boxes correct so <laughs> yeah yeah it's just tough and i figured that this has to be changed like and that was one of the key problems the tools they, they were outdated and hard to use and also very minimum functionality and the other problem was you needed to use a lot of those tools like three or four of them and they make them work together and that was very tough because all of these software have their own format and they do their calculation differently, correct? And then you have to, you have a team of engineers basically building less type curves or scheduling. And then you have to take those from that software, convert it to another format, bring it into the other software. And think about it. This has to be done across 20, 30, 40 engineers. And things are changing every day. And then it's wow. just, yeah, and it's very, very it's really is tough. And that makes the iterations very slow. And well, very well not only time. that, but there's so much room for error. 100%. 100% there are a ton of room for error because you build your typecast in one platform. You do your scheduling in another platform. You do your economics in one other platform. You might do your forecast in one other platform. And then you have to bring it all into Aries, which is like a more of a database. And then in Aries, you just have to press run. And I figured this is just doesn't make sense for a lot of cases. So anyway, so the problem was... It's a very big problem. Clearly. So Clearly. You're talking about workflow problems. You're talking about multi-outdated software problem. You're talking about collaboration, multiple engineers. You're talking about standardization of the workflows and the way that we do our analysis within the company and also from within the industry, correct? Because so, it's very hard to benchmark stuff. Like It's very, very hard to benchmark stuff to figure out who's doing it the correct way, who's been aggressive, who's been pessimistic, because everybody's doing it their own way. Right, right. Yeah. Well, so now we know your inspiration of, for Combo Curve, huh? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was from our day-to-day pain, like as an engineer and then running a company. And believe it or not, that whole situation that I mentioned, the workflows, it was a big, big issues like in not being a lot of oil and gas projects not being successful, correct? Yeah, because, that makes sense. Yeah. The analysis wasn't as, some of it was very shallow, you know, so because you have to make decisions. And then for a lot of people to just to make things work, you have to super simplify it and bring it into Excel. That's what's happening. So a lot of people are using Excel for economics or writing their own internal software, which is very, very expensive and time consuming and error prone again, correct? And very hard to maintain. So Everybody were trying to like literally solve this problem by just because there was not a real robust solution in the market. So 
you have to change from one software to another software that is maybe 10, 20% better, if that. So nobody wanted to change for that reason. And then they start building their own internal software. And then they realize that, oh man, that's just crazy complicated, correct? Because they're not software companies. And the moment that software engineer who built a leave to go work for Amazon and Google, nobody's there to maintain it. Anyway, so that was a problem. And it was pretty obvious within our organization and also many, many other organizations. So it took all that happening at Equinor, which was Stat Oil back then. So where did you get the, I'm going to make a change. I'm going to start my own company. I'm going to fix this problem. Where did it really hit you? Yeah, I mean, I always wanted it to, I mean, I refuse to just, just assume, yeah, it is what it is and just keep going and just follow the status quo. So I never had that personality. Like if something doesn't work, I always want to fix it, especially if it's my day-to-day problem, correct? So that was my mentality. I was like, okay, we have to fix this. And then especially this is my career, correct? So I don't want to change my career because the workflow is not working. (laughs) And I did a very detailed research and I figured, I mean, nobody's actually very successful in fixing this problem. So, and that makes it even more interesting because it's very challenging, correct? So it just tells you this is something challenging, something's not simple. But if you figure out how to solve it, then that's something that it would be very astonishing, correct? Like it would be something that it can be very impactful for the industry and a lot of my colleagues, correct? A lot of people uh-huh. who were in my shoes. So that's why I chose to basically leave Equinor and get after this and learn programming and just figure out how we can solve this problem effectively. All right. Well, then let's talk about what Combo Curve does exactly. So Combo Curve, we started from a very detailed production forecasting, type curves, and economics, which is a very key workflow for a lot of engineers in the EMPs and the mineral companies and the investments, so, and even banks. So that's a piece of software that pretty much majority of the companies in the oil and gas, they need, correct? So they need to figure out how much production they have in future, basically forecast those into future. Uh And so they can report their reserves and also for their budgetings and planning and also for A&D purposes. And the next step is once you have those production, you have to figure out what is the economic of those production. So it's a piece of software and workflow that pretty much majority of the companies they need. So we started with that. And I knew basically at that time that a lot of other pieces of workflow has to feed to this key workflow to make it work. For example, when you do your production forecasting and economics, you need to have a prediction for your future locations that doesn't have, there's no production data at that point. If you really want to drill five years from now, you have to be able to figure out how much oil and gas that well is going to produce. So we that's why we start building a type curve engine that is integrated into column curve. And then the next thing is when I'm going to drill those wells and where I'm going to drill those wells, correct? So basically scheduling and planning is another big piece of the puzzle to figure out the value of your future locations and also your the economic for the entire acreage, current production, and also your PDMP and pod locations. And then I figured, okay, to make everything work, all these things have to talk to each other because <laughs> that's how it is. And you don't want to jump around from one tool to another tool. It's a big vision. 
but we started from the core and we are expanding to all the adjacent workflows, like I mentioned. And also a lot of these key workflows is just not unique to just reservoir engineers. So like you see production engineers, they can take advantage of a lot of forecasts that has been generated by reservoir engineers. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask, I was like, is this just a reservoir engineer no. software? That's great. Go ahead. No, this is a multidiscipline. So like, again, like production engineers, they need forecast. And finance guys, they need the forecast, correct? So everybody needs the forecast. And then planning team, obviously, they want to figure out where they want to drill, right? So obviously, right. they want to figure out those, on those locations that is more economic and it gives them more oil. So that's, you see that piece, correct? So everything's pretty much has to be integrated, correct? So that's, yeah. at the end, that's how things are, the real world, is complex, correct? So whatever the work you do in your team, that output from that work is necessary for the other person to get his job done. And sometimes you need input from that other teammates, correct? So right now we see production engineers, reservoir engineers, planning engineers, finance guys, you know, GNG, they all work in one platform, basically, so they can collaborate and they bring in their workflows basically into one platform and make it all talk. Yeah. And all you got to do is use one system. So one that's, system. That's fantastic. One, one system that is integrated. And in the meantime, we know some of these milestones are big milestones, correct? So, but again, we are here for the long run, correct? So we know to get it done right, we need to basically have a team of dedicated developers. So we have right now 50 software developers and data scientists fully focused on maintaining our platform and adding all the features and bells and vessels. And also we figured that with this, again, there's another piece of the puzzle that is just recently becoming super popular and very necessary is greenhouse gas emission. Again, that is again, very, very important workflow that, that it requires a lot of integration with the rest of the workflow. So one of the key things is what is the impact of emission and on my asset valuation, correct? So if your asset has a lot of emission or very ex a lot of exposure to greenhouse, so it, it won't have potentially the same value of the asset that produces oil and gas at the lower emission, correct? So that's something that it just makes us super unique because we're integrating these two as well. Well, and one of the things I really appreciate that with my regulatory compliance background is that it actually generates EPA subpart W reports. So anything, exactly. that, yeah, anything that just generates a forum that's required by the government is just so helpful. Absolutely. And think about it, just doing that piece plus making it more robust and integrated for the rest of the workflow so you can actually plan if, let's say if you want to reduce your emission by 10, 20 percent in the next five years, you need to plan for it, correct? So, and that planning, we are building features so you can do those plannings in a more granular basis instead of just some back on napkin calculations. Right, right. Well, let's get a little into leadership. What would you say leadership is to you? So, leadership to me is being the examples. So, and then also understanding processes and the workflows, correct? So, and then figuring out what is important and prioritization. So going back to the leadership, so you want to be the role model and example. So that's the key. And then understanding priorities. So like there are hundreds of tasks that needs to be get done, correct? Figuring out how valuable those tasks are 
and also and how much work it is to get those done basically i so i have a very simple rule of thumb i divide priority by amount of work and i figure out which task gets the highest rating correct so let's say if i have 10 tasks three of them are considered very important out of those very important tasks i'm going to choose the one that is smallest correct to get that that one done faster so that's a strategy but and it works for a lot of stuff correct because you know there are a lot of initiatives and in the companies so it's important to bring focus and just focus on those key matters that basically are impactful yeah so and also being available for your team another very key factor is being super responsive and available and sit down with brainstorm and figure problems together so, and if you don't know how to solve it yourself, you have to be able to locate an individual and an expert who knows how to solve that problem. So that's another case. So basically being able to network a lot and having a lot of relationships available as well. Yeah. And what do you think is the easiest part about being a leader? The easiest piece, honestly, is not necessarily very easy. Like, that's a very good question. The easiest piece is possibly is the part that there are some pieces of the workflows that you don't want to deal with it yourself, correct? So you might find it a little bit tedious for you, but it's something fun for somebody else in your team, correct? So those are the pieces that you potentially get to choose what part of it to actually do that, what part of it you can add a lot more value, correct? So that's the fun piece. And the other fun piece is like, I mean, you're controlling your own destiny pretty much, correct? Kind of, correct? Like, especially in my position. Like, so that makes it a little bit fun, but sometimes a little bit stressful too, because, you know, any decision that you make, it can impact a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All these people under you. Well, and speaking of that, so what's the hardest part about being a leader? Majority of it's hard. <laughs> so, I mean, if you, if you want to be a top performing leader, so obviously you have to work harder than a lot of other people you want to stay ahead of competition you want to hit your targets and then you want to have lofty targets you know because that makes us exciting for everyone correct and planning to get there so it's tough correct because there are a lot of moving pieces but again if you honor those fundamentals that i mentioned initially which is understanding how to prioritize and bring focus that's one of the key things here correct and then figuring that that piece that you have to figure what is important what's not important right now that's something that a lot of people have challenged to figure it out correct? yeah like figuring they, out what's priority and what isn't yeah it might sound very simple but that's a lot of people that's the decisions that we make and then those decisions because at the end the time will never come back correct? right so and if you lose time then you will lose a lot of other stuff. Like you will lose hitting your revenue target, you will lose hitting your releases and everything. And then the other pieces in terms of working hard and being available is something that you can do it, obviously, correct? But the first piece that figuring out what is important and what's not important, that's just become something a little bit more intuition and a little bit more talent and having more knowledge about the industry. So all of it is doable, but again, it's just not easy. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> so if you had one piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be? <laughs> that would sound very cliche. So I think you should not chase money. That's my opinion. If you follow something that you are really passionate about and you really enjoy it, everything else will come, correct? So you're like, let's say if your goal is to 
build something that you really enjoy building and, and you want to really add value to your society and industry, the money will come naturally. But if you just go chase money, then it becomes not fun. You know, it becomes stressful and not fun. So, and that's something that a lot of other entrepreneurs are saying. But initially, for a lot of people, it's like, oh, there you go. He's just repeating what they are saying, and or they, there you go. Like they just sound, they sound very cliche. But you will get there very quickly, honestly. You will get there after two to three years, and you figure, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's this, startup. Yeah. That startup yeah. community is pretty tough. Yeah, and then if you're just chasing money, I mean, that takes you up to a certain point, you know, like after that, like you potentially will get burned and you will not hit those ultimate potentials that you have. So don't be greedy. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's just honestly, it's about the greed. If you follow your passion, you will make a lot more money. You see, your money will come naturally. But if you just go and chase money, it's just it becomes not fun. You see, like the whole process is not going to be fun. No, it makes absolute sense to me. Absolute sense. Mm -hmm. So what book influenced you the most and why? I'm not a book reader. The reason that I'm saying sometimes I'm impatient. I want to get to the answer very quickly. (laughs) I get that. I feel that in my soul. (laughs) Yeah. And then the problem with, honestly, with majority of the books are they just have to have a certain number of pages, correct? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like you have to have, I don't know, minimum 50 pages. So they have to put a lot of fluff in those books. Lots of elaboration that's unnecessary. Exactly. That's one of the key problems with a lot of books. And people constantly saying read more books, books, books. But I would say if I would love to read book summaries and uh, like just like key bullet points or watching videos. I prefer videos, honestly, because you can get the message very quickly. That's what I recommend. I like, I love watching a lot of scientific like quick videos, like five to 15 minute videos. And also one of the books that has been recommended by a lot of people is just is around OKRs, learning what matters, you know? So like, that's another very important thing for a lot of people if they want to read a book. But again, you can get the gist of it and you can just by watching some videos about it. Because again, like I read books and I forget a lot, 70, 80% of it's just repetitions and fluffs. <laughs> unfortunately oh yeah no absolutely 100 percent agree i mean it takes so much for me to finish a book i have a couple that i have in a pile they're not very thick but it's just like keeping my attention i'm like can we get to the point now can we get to the point so exactly. I definitely understand. that's the problem that's the problem and a lot of times they lack bringing real examples that you can connect the dots correct so you right. see a lot of books they just talk like in theory and they don't tell you a real good example. So you can see the applications of it, correct? I saw a lot of books missing that as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So let's get off the book subject. Let's talk about <laughs> what is your most used business tool? Business tools in terms of you talking about software and... Well, something you use daily, you know, something I use might be Microsoft Teams, for, mm-hmm, ex- for example. But- Yeah, very good point. So I obviously I'm using my email very heavily. I'm using Zoom very heavily. Mm -hmm. LinkedIn, I use LinkedIn super often and Slack. So these are the key tools that I'm using, Slack and uh, and of course Excel. So these are on day-to-day basis, I use them very heavily. In terms of task management, I have it all in my head. Like literally I just, if things are small enough, I will get it done immediately. If there are things are big, then I would 
again, I will, I know I need to focus on one or two of them at most. Mm-hmm. And those are in my head, correct? So, so I don't necessarily use the task management system as much. I'm kind of jealous. For, I put for, every, I put everything in my calendar so it gets done by the time it's due. Yeah, I'm super impatient. You know, so if I want to get something, I just want to do it at that moment. You yeah. see, like I just uh, get it done at that moment, and then unless if it's a big task, and if it's a big task, again, I still want to get it done same week or next week. I don't have plan for I don't know six months down the road. Yeah, because the way that I see it, even if you do those planning, highly likely a lot of things will change in the meantime, and then you you will not gonna get those done anyway. So and things can materially change in the course of one or two months, and so and things are super hazy down the road. For the down the road, like let's say six months, I just know high level what needs to be done. Correct? So, yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I also appreciate how self-aware you are. Like, you know you're impatient. That's fantastic. A lot of people don't, mm-hmm. won't admit to certain things like that. So I really yeah, appreciate no, that. Yeah, no, I'm definitely, I'm super, like, I am personally, like, that's good and bad. The good thing is, uh, like, you get a lot of those random small tasks done quickly. The thing that might not work very well is just, you might expect the same thing from other people correct right so and at that point i recommend the task management system correct because i might say 10 things to one person and then that individual might figure out which one i'm going to get right now which one of them i'm going to get done right now and they might feel overwhelmed right? they're like oh man there are 10 of them should I do all 10 of them at the same time and then so yeah that's why it's, at that point you have a task management system and helping them to prioritize become very important yep good old project management Absolutely. So who would you say is your most respected competitor? Very good point. So in the oil and gas industry, it might sound a little bit, I mean, it's fortunately or unfortunately, I would say we we don't see a ton of competitor for us. And again, we're dealing with legacy tools in the market and they've been around for 30, 40 years. They're not as motivated to change and they're not as motivated to generate and then all their founders and key people either retired or they already they're just not motivated enough correct so i mean we do not see a ton of competitors for us in the oil and gas industry honestly so and but for us what makes us motivated is is big targets that we put internally and then in that's between me and my partner are our investors so we put some targets that might sound very 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 non uh, like very tough targets to reach and it's in, some people might think those targets are even stupid because it's just too ambitious but we see that that just makes us to move faster it makes us to never feel comfortable correct it's just like you always feel like you're behind correct so <laughs> and then that's something, that's the feeling that I have. I always think, okay, man, I'm behind. I need to go get it done. I need to go get it done because we have such a big target. And then that will create a, it becomes a self-motivated system. Yeah. 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 That makes sense to me. So what is your most important lesson learned? Yeah. The most important lesson learned is having a very, very good advisors like advisors that who have done it before. Mm-hmm. Like, let's say, you know, high level what you want to do in future. For example, you want to be a mechanical engineer, correct? Like you just give an example. Mm-hmm. Instead of you go and become a mechanical engineer, talk 
to those role models that you have in mechanical engineering, correct? Like, let's say, what is your end goal? Your end goal is become the best mechanical engineer? Go ahead and talk three or four mechanical engineers that are really good at what they're doing. So you know all the information that they have ahead of time. So you can avoid a lot of pitfalls and a lot of mouse traps, correct? So, because time is, will never come back. So I personally, I could have been in this position five years ago. Mm-hmm. So that five years, I would never ever get it back, correct? Right. So, but money, again, like I said, to me, money will come and then that's not a concern to me, but it's just time is something that's gone. I will never get it back. And the only way you can prevent it by talking to enough people who have been there and people who know their stuff, correct? Right. And just especially people that are relevant to what you want to do. And they are really amazing at what they're doing. Yeah. Mentors are so important because you don't want to waste your time, just like you were saying, on making mistakes they've already done. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. 100%. 100%. And then the other thing is you, know, you don't want to – I recommend to having three to five like potential advisors or mentors – is that a matter point, of perspective on their yeah perspective their yeah perspective and also having checks and balance correct because you don't want to just listen to I mean it's if you get lucky you might find the best mentor correct but it's, that's tough normally correct because you don't have that knowledge to see if this guy is the best mentor you see like you know like, it's very hard to figure if this guy is really is the best mentor or not correct yeah. so at that point you will talk to let's say if you have three mentors you will run that idea by the other two and see their perspective as well, correct? Yeah. And then at that point, you're just not listening to one person. I mean, you might get lucky and find a super amazing person that is like everything he tells you is just golden, correct? Right. But just statistically, it's just not, I don't think it's I guess you also have to worry about like personality clashes too, right? You might butt heads. Yeah, I mean, again, at the end, you're going to get perspective of three people instead of one person. I think that's always beneficial. Yeah. Perfect. So why do you think your role now is important to the future of the oil and gas industry, Arman? So one thing that I want to definitely promote, I want to promote a culture of positivity between oil and gas renewables. That's that to me is just the way that a lot of these discussions are being handled is not effective and it's not good. And it's just a lot of negativity around renewable versus oil and gas. I don't think that we should think that way at all. I mean, one thing about oil and gas industry is they've been called energy company or fossil fuel, which is, I mean, it's correct. We generate a lot of energy, but more importantly, we are raw material. We are the component for the raw material, correct? So we have to do a lot more educating. We have to educate the people, industry, everyone, that they have to, in my opinion, be positive and just talk nicely about all types of energy and then speak about all the great things that they do, correct? And like educate people that say, yeah, look around, 90% of your material around you is made from oil and gas. People don't know that. Everybody's thinking we're just making fuel and we burn it in the cars and then electric cars are coming, you don't have any future. That's not the case. Yeah, hydrocarbons are everywhere. Mm. Everywhere. And then let's go ahead and ban oil and gas. Okay. If you do that, where the material is going to come from? You see, like, I don't know the exact percentage, but at least 30, 40% of the oil and gas being used for material. 
correct? Right. So where are you going to get that from? The renewable is not going to make you those materials. Well, those materials that are green and everything are made from hydrocarbons. Yeah, exactly. So where are we going to get that? Where are we going to get the solar panels? Where are we going to get the windmills? They're made from oil and gas. Yeah, so you see what I'm saying, because people are not educated enough, correct? So, and it's very easy just to point fingers at oil and gas companies and blame them for everything. Well, and that's what the media wants everybody to think. Yeah, but again, us, and we can educate people. Instead of just confront them, like you say, yeah, your energy is terrible, our energy is better. Let's start putting positive material and talk positive about everything. Like everything has positives and negatives, all energies, correct? Let's just bring facts instead of pointing fingers, correct? Yeah. Factual. That will do a great job. We're slowly improving our images, you know, but we have to speak up. That's one thing that we don't do in the energy industry. We don't speak up. It's starting to change. So I feel really good about it. A matter of fact, we have a street team and part of that street team goes into schools and reads elementary kids' books talking about what oil and gas is. And in middle school, they show experiments, what fracking is, and so on and so forth. So we're getting there slowly but surely. Very slowly. Yeah. You're right. Very slowly. And that's not good, correct? That's just too slow. Like if you look at LinkedIn, a lot of posts that I see is like bashing one another. Yeah. It's just non-constructive. That's the piece that I think is very important in the oil and gas industry. We be proactive about it. And anything, that, any great thing that we do, let's say, okay, the focus is not to flare. Mm-hmm. Let's bring up, we're not flaring. Like we reduce the flare by a huge percentage. Let's right. just talk about it. Let everyone knows that we are, if something is not good, we try to stop it, correct? So for many different reasons. So let's just bring it up. So that's for the, as for the industry. And the other thing that we want to be the best software company and technology, not necessarily just in the oil and gas. Right. So we want to be the role model for all the other software companies as well. Because what we are doing is extremely complicated. And like really, I've, we hired, like right now, we have a team of roughly 50 software developers and a lot of them, came from different companies and then what they seen that we built is just amazes them, you know, in terms of the technologies that we are using and the interactions and the capabilities of the computations that we built is just amazes them. And these guys are coming again, super experienced software developers from other tech companies. And when they see what we build is just they give us a lot of props. So again, we want to be the role model for software a lot of software companies in the world. And so they see all the great work that we are doing for the industry and also promoting our great industry as well. Yes, that's great. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me again today, Armin. If people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about Combo Curve, how can they go about doing so? I'm always available on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. They can message me on LinkedIn. And also if they go on Combo Curve, they can simply fill out a form and then we will get in touch. Okay, perfect. And I'll make sure all those links are in the show notes. So if anybody's interested, they can go in there and just click and get a hold of you right away. Awesome. Okay. So that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com. 